to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. <coughs> Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret place. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it the sacrifices. You will not be pleased uh, with a, a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, uh, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever done something that you still regret doing to this day? Have you ever done something that you still regret doing uh, to this day? Uh, you know, I was listening to the story on the podcast, This American Life, and uh, the story revolves around two sisters named Elna and Julia Baker. Uh, Elna, as an adult now, uh, recounts the story of when her, her and her four siblings uh, were little kids and they were asked by their parents to help clean the garage in their house. Uh, Elna, Elna doesn't really share uh, what the other kids were doing, but while she was earnestly cleaning their garage, her sister Julia had found a pair of um, roller skates in the garage and began skating around in them. Now, uh, nine-year-old Elna thought that her five-year-old sister wasn't pulling her weight around, and so she tells her sister to help out. But of course, you know, if you're an older sibling, telling your younger sibling to do something, what usually happens, they say, no. And so five-year-old Julia ignores Elna as she continues skating. But in Elna's mind, uh, younger siblings aren't, are supposed to listen to their older siblings. And as Julia continues to skate on with her command ignored, Julia, or Elna gets so mad that she hits Julia in the head with this huge industrial broom lying around in the garage. And whether she under, underestimated her nine-year-old strength or not, from the top of her head, blood begins streaming down her head, down her face. Uh, to see anyone with blood streaming down their head is, is pretty shocking no matter how old you are. And so Elna is completely shocked and in horror that she might have accidentally killed her younger sister. Julia, obviously in pain, but obviously fine, runs to her dad, who stops her bleeding by simply clotting the blood with towels and putting a, a simple band-aid on top of her hair. And so after their dad fixes up Julia, he comes out into the hallway of their house and, and he asks Elna what happened. But after seeing that Julia had stopped bleeding and crying, Elna now actually faces a greater terror than the first one. Because why was Julia bleeding and crying in the first place? Well, it's because Elna, as we know, hit 
Julia's head with this huge industrial broom. And if her dad finds out, Elna knows just how much trouble that she will how, how much trouble she will be in if she confessed. And so instead of telling the truth, she lies and says that it was all an accident. Something that I think is pretty typical of, of us. And it was a slip of the wrist, and the broom accidentally falls on her head. But of course, Julia and Elna both know exactly what happened. Elna hit her head intentionally and deserves to be spanked. But just when she thought her discipline was all but inevitable, her mom all of a sudden turns everything around. Her mom isn't convinced that she hit Julia's head on purpose. It had to be an accident because it defies logic for, for Elna to hold the broom the way that she did and for the broom to hit Julia the way that it did. And so El- Elna just runs with it and she just says that, I-, I guess I'm just guilty for being stupid. And she cracks a, cr- a sly smile. And if you were actually watching video footage of this, you would have thought that this was the making of a psychopath. But just like that, Elna was off the hook. There was no spanking, no consequences. But for the rest of her childhood and even into her 30s, Elna didn't feel like she was off the hook because the feeling of guilt and regret stuck with her and it didn't go away. Even though Julia, the the rest of her family, and even life itself had moved on, the guilt and the regret didn't. Because for Elna, greater than the act of hitting her sister was the fact that at nine years old, she was capable of such raw scheming and manipulative lying. Have you ever done something to this day that you still regret doing? Maybe you're full of regrets, maybe you're taking those six AP classes and it's now too late to drop them. Uh, In a moment of great weakness and hunger, uh, maybe you regretfully waste your meal and you eat terrible pho. Uh, Yes, it's happened before. But this isn't usually the kind of regret and guilt that sticks with us. For some of us, we we carry low-grade guilt with us all day. For some of you, guilt has a very palpable and personal presence. For some of us, we have an acute awareness and sense of how we have gone wrong. We feel guilty for the things that we did, but we shouldn't have done, uh, or we we feel guilty for the things that we did, but we shouldn't have done, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Maybe it was what we said to our siblings or our parents, maybe we we had done something that humiliated another person. Maybe it was what we had looked at online or the way that we had handled conflict with a friend. You know, when I, was a, when I was a junior in high school, I had egged a classmate's house. And you know, it's, it's still something that I think about from time to time, even as a 29-year-old. For some of us, we feel guilty for the things that we didn't do but should have done. You know, it's the kind of guilt that comes from when we could have done something to prevent something else from happening, whether it was an accident uh, that could have been pre- prevented, uh, maybe perhaps even a life decision that could have been wisely counseled against. And maybe even for some of us, even suicide that could have been averted. For for others of us, we feel guilty for things that are completely outside of our control, but still feel responsible for. We feel guilty for not meeting certain standards or expectations, either from our parents or our friends, teachers, sports coaches. It's the kind of guilt that comes from the feeling that that we've let other people down, even though we didn't really do anything wrong. For some of us, we feel guilty for the things that we shouldn't have to feel guilty about, But for some others of us, we don't feel guilty for the things that we should feel guilty about. So rather than experiencing guilt from a tender conscience, we don't experience guilt at all because of a hardened conscience. Where are you on the spectrum of guilt? Where are you on the spectrum of guilt? What do you feel guilty about? And how do you deal with it? You know, as we turn our attention to Psalm 51, we see how King David deals with his own guilt. 
But there, you know, there's a there's a there's a dark backdrop to Psalm 51. Uh, it's the reason why this message is actually so long. Uh, after a season, let me let me just set the backdrop for us. Uh, after a season of unprecedented prosperity and abundance as the king of Israel, when he should have been out to war with his countrymen, King David saunters onto the rooftop of his palace on an early evening. And this already tells us that sin finds us not in suffering and in want, but oftentimes in plenty and abundance when we least expect it. Now, the timing of when he goes out onto his rooftop is important because it was common decency that you don't go out onto your rooftop at that time of day because early evening was when women engaged in ritual cleansing and bathing. (coughs) Women didn't bathe in their courtyards to intentionally entice peeping toms. So while King David didn't walk over to his rooftop to intentionally spy on women bathing, his first steps onto his palace rooftop already signals and indicates his deliberate first steps toward moral failure. By stepping outside onto his rooftop at that time of night, David was already at the wrong place and at the wrong time. As he steps outside, he sees a a woman bathing in the courtyard of her home for ritual cleansing. Her name is Bathsheba, and her husband is Uriah, a loyal soldier who um, is fighting in David's army, and he likes what he sees. And as king, he sends her, sends for her, he takes her, and he sleeps with her. It was not love, nor even a one-night stand. It was at best an abuse of his power, and at worst, it was rape. Either way, not long after that, she is pregnant with his child. And in an attempt to cover all of it, David crafts an alibi by bringing Uriah back from the battlefield so that he can fulfill his marital rights. Maybe if Uriah sleeps with his wife and gets his wife pregnant, David can actually get away with his crime. Instead, Uriah sleeps on the porch of David's palace because he cannot in good conscience spend time with his wife while his comrades are on the battlefield dying. And so David tries to get Uriah drunk. But a drunk Uriah still proves to be a better man than a, than a sober David, as his plan fails. Finally, a frustrated King David sends Uriah back onto the battlefield with the intention of plotting his death. So he places him on the front lines. And lo and behold, on the front lines, he dies. And so uh, soon after... Uh, actually, let me go back a little bit. David not only abused his kingly power and authority by sleeping with Bathsheba, he also personally crafted the execution and murder of her husband. Rape and murder. Soon after the mourning of her loss, David marries Bathsheba, and immediately after the priest pronounces them husband and wife, David secretly breathes a sigh of relief. And he says to himself, dodge that bullet, or so he thinks. Because even after David had moved on from his unrepentant sin, as the kingdom of David had moved on, as the people of Israel had moved on, as life itself had moved on, God in his mercy didn't move on. That God is patient with sinners doesn't mean that God is in any way tolerant of their sin. And so God sends Nathan to David, Nathan the prophet, and with a story, Nathan has trapped David in his own judgment and springs the trap, and he says to David, you are the man. David is completely exposed. And what we see in the dark backdrop of Psalm 51 is David in the hands of God's severe grace and mercy. And you know, the more that I think about it, 
the more I am convinced that scripture is the most relevant thing that you and I will ever read. (coughs) Scripture is completely honest in its portrayals of despicable and shameful acts of human sin and failure. There is no attempt by the biblical authors to hide these details. There is no attempt to paint David, people like David in a favorable light as someone who is beyond the failings and trappings of everyday people like you and me. Because like David, our lives are filled with checkered pasts. Things that we don't want uncovered, things that we don't want people to know or see, maybe in different degrees and shades, but never in different kinds of struggle and sin. The Bible's stories in all of their open ugliness tell my story, and they tell your story as well. And it's what makes David's confession of sin in Psalm 51 our confession of sin as well. And so far more hopeful than hating ourselves because of our guilt, but far better than forgiving ourselves from our guilt, David in Psalm 51, this is the key idea, instructs us on three better ways for dealing with our guilt. And just for this evening, we're going to be only focusing on one way. The first way is we appeal to the character of God. We appeal to the character of God. We appeal to the character of God. Take a look back at verse 1. King David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. On the basis of what he had done, knowing this dark backdrop, David knew that he had no rights before God. There there is no pretense in his words. He banks his hope on the only thing that he can bank his hope in, the character of God, the, the mercy and steadfast love of God. And faced with death as the consequences for his actions, David is asking God not to treat him as he deserves to be treated, but precisely the opposite. And so that actually brings us to, to three different ways on what it means to appeal to the character of God. The first is that appealing to the character of God means that we don't negotiate with God. We don't negotiate with God. Notice how David doesn't begin by saying, God, I know that I've really blown it, but let's also not forget how much I've done for you as the king of Israel. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, I did all of this stuff for you. I killed Goliath. I respected that idiot King Saul. I wrote a bunch of songs. I wanted to build you a house. I did all of this stuff for you. As the king, David could have appealed to his achievements as leverage before God in light of all the dark things that he had done. And you know, the temptation for many of us when we face our own guilt is we compare ourselves to other people. Do we not? You know, we think to ourselves, at least what I did wasn't half as bad as what this other person did. Maybe we will remind God, ourselves, and others of all the sins that we have not committed. You know, I would never ever talk to someone like that. I would never ever cheat on a test. I would never talk behind this person's back. I would never ever watch this movie. And the reality is that when we face guilt, we appeal to the good stuff in our lives as our leverage before God. But what we see in just the first verse of David's confession is that he isn't appealing to his past goodness, but appealing to only what a sinner before a holy God can do. He appeals to what he personally knows about God. And that brings us to secondly, that appealing to the character of God means that God is more for, for David than a set of facts. God is more than a set of facts. The phrase steadfast love in this verse is actually the Hebrew word chesed, which refers to God's covenant and faithful love 
to his people. It refers to his faithful love that God extends no matter how unfaithful his people are. And Chesed first shows up right after Israel makes the golden calf and they betray God who led them out of slavery. And if you remember the story, instead of wiping them off of the face of the earth, God passes before Moses and he proclaims this statement. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast, steadfast love for thousands, for forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You know, this is something that David would have recited and heard every morning and every evening when he was a kid. You know, this was his two ways to live every morning and every evening. And what this tells us is that this knowledge of God wasn't merely factual nor intellectual. It was personal. This is something that, if we understand and remember, that, that David knew all of his entire life, heard his entire life. And yet for David, his knowledge of God actually affected and did something in his life. God was more than a set of facts. God was his only hope. That was it. I mean, let me just break it down a little bit more for us. For most of us, I'm, I'm convinced. Our knowledge of God is just reduced to a set of facts on a piece of paper. You know, we are so familiar with the grace of God that we have lost the marvel of his mercy. It is nothing more than what we sing about on a Sunday, nothing more than what we sing about on a Friday evening. Hearing the gospel hardly raises any goosebumps in our souls. Hearing the promises of God in scripture is nothing, nothing more than a check off our to-do list. In fact, it's just another thing that I can add to my ongoing negotiations with God. But perhaps the reason why we always carry with us low-grade guilt is because we still compensate for wrongdoing rather than going to the God who is faithful and eager to forgive. And we know all of this. We, we, all know all, we, we all know all of this. But rather than resting in the merc, merciful God, we pledge to ourselves, to others, and to God that we'll do better next time. I mean, isn't that what you guys really just talk about on, on, in your small groups anyway? Isn't that typically how we end our small groups? Well, what can we do differently next, next week? How can we change next week? For others of us, we are harsh and critical of others as a way to clear ourselves of all the ways in which we fail to meet God's standards. We are quick to remind and identify the wrongs in other people's lives because they look so familiar and similar to our own. One of the reasons why we compare ourselves to others is so that we can feel good about ourselves. But the more we fail to acknowledge how terrible we are, the more we will actually place ourselves farther and farther away from the gracious reach of God. You will never ever experience joy in forgiveness, freedom from guilt, until you find rest in the merciful character of God and stop resting in the hands of your own self-righteousness. It's the reason why David has found freedom from his guilt. And so rather than masking his failures, he owns up to all of it. He says, and take a look at verses two to three. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And that brings us to the third aspect of what it means to appeal to the character of God. Appealing to the character of God means that we own up to our sins. We own up to our sins. Now look at how many my's and me's David uses. 
He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. True confession is for sure personal, but true confession is also always impartial. Impartial. One characteristic of true confession is the courage to deal with yourself impartially, to make no excuses for yourself. Rather than focusing on specific types of sin, David uses all three. He says iniquity, sin, transgression. He, it's, it's to describe the full extent of his, of his own sin. Iniquity refers to crookedness. Sin refers to, to missing the mark. Transgression refers to betrayal against God and other people. David doesn't miss a thing in his confession. It is complete and total. What David's response to his own sin shows us what it looks like to fully own and fess up to our sin. You know, several years ago, um, I had conflict with someone uh, at church who had, uh, who had talked behind my back and slandered me in front of some people. And I don't say this because, you know, to, to clear my name, whatever. Um, but I had happened to talk with Pastor Kim about it. And I don't even know how this conversation had come up, but Pastor Kim was sharing with me similar stories about facing criticism, criticism from other people. And I was like, no way, Pastor Kim, you, like, you're an angel. Um, and, and, you know, he had, he had told me that when, he, when, um, when it had happened to him, uh, it was super easy to, to self-justify and to dismiss all of their claims. But then he started talking about it uh, and then thinking about it another way. And this was something that I'll never forget. This, this is what he said. He said, let's just suppose that 99% of what the other person said was false. But what about the 1%? What if that 1% is actually true about you? 99% of it is false, but what if that 1% is true? Even if 99% of what the other person said about me was false, could there be an ounce of truth in what that person said? And if there is even a tiny shred of truth, then that's what we need to take ownership of. That's where we need to change. This, this revolutionized the way that I look at criticism and honest confession. Whether a critic's manner is gracious or malicious, whether the timing is good or bad, whether the intention even is constructive or destructive, whether the content is accurate, half-true, or utterly false, in any case, being criticized reveals who you are. The temptation when any sin is revealed is the temptation to self-deflect. If only the test wasn't so hard, then I wouldn't have cheated. If only this person wasn't so annoying or so dumb, then I wouldn't have made fun of them. If only I wasn't stuck at every single light on Crenshaw, then I wouldn't have gotten angry. The seductive thing about our, our if-only situations is that there is actually a hint, there is a hint of plausibility in all of them. We don't live in a perfect world with perfect relationships. The world is a broken place and all of our lives have been touched by brokenness. We've been sinned against in various ways, but living with an if-only lifestyle tends to say that my biggest problems in life exist outside of me and not inside of me. But David's response to God's criticism reveals the real state of his heart before God. What we see in David's response is neither self-pity self-protection, nor self-justification. He was not hard on others and easy on himself. He did not plead to any kind of human weakness. He made no exceptions or excuses. What David's response to his own sin revealed was a sensitivity to God's criticism. 
And yet what we find also in this passage is that his confession went deeper still. Take a look at verse 4. He says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're not gonna we're gonna actually flip there eventually, but right here at least, all that David had was concerned about was how do I cover up my tracks? And here in Psalm 51, the only thing that matters to David now is how could I have treated my God like this? What I want you guys to see, high schooler, is that it is a sign of maturity when you can see that the sin that once delighted you is something that actually has come to a David now sees his sin for what it is. Hi, girls. Can you close the door for me? Thank you. Hi. (laughs) Audrey and Elise are here. Um, (laughs) It's in the recording now. Um, But David now sees his sin for what it is. Evil in the sight of God. But when David says, against you, you only have I sinned? David was not overlooking the crimes against Bathsheba and her husband, but he saw that the transgression against Bathsheba and Uriah were but deeper transgressions. He saw that the crimes and evils committed against them both revealed a deeper crime and evil against Yahweh, his God. That the violations against God's people were ultimately a violation against God himself. And what David shows us is that our relationships with others reveal our relationship with God. It reveals us. I think one of the reasons why we are so flippant with sin, why we are so calloused by our sin, why we, why we, why we will even make jokes about sin, like that person is such a sinner, haha, or why we don't take some sins like lying or making fun of others or impatience or kindness as seriously as some other sins like lust or cussing someone out or, like, or, or, or rape or murder is because we have ultimately forgotten that sin is ultimately against God. It is not merely against other people. It is fundamentally against him. And it was in light of that, that it wrecked David. It absolutely crushed David that he had treated God like this. Not just Bathsheba and Uriah, but he had treated God like this. It's because David understood that at the heart of sin, in the words of John Bunyan, is the dare of his justice. It is the rape of his mercy. It is the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. David understood what sin was against God. David's sin broke his heart because sin breaks the heart of God. That's that's why David was able to confess something like this. He cared more about his relationship with God than anything else. Does your sin break your heart? Christian, does your sin break your heart? Not because of its potential consequences, but because of what it does to your relationship with God and how it devastates the lives of other people. And what I want you to see, high schooler, is that in this bare and raw confession, David didn't care about the consequences nor the discipline of God's criticism. If you think about it, there's no reason for King David to lay bare his confession of rape, of sin, and murder if he cared about the consequences. 
It doesn't make sense. There's, there, there are no sins that any, these are no sins that any Christian should be proud of. There was a lot at stake for David to confess this and reveal this to the entire church history. And Christians today, 2,000 years, 4,000 years later, are still reading his story. David was a king. He wasn't some peasant. He was Israel's anticipated king. To confess such high-handed sin wasn't only embarrassing, but also disqualifying. The person who cares more about their position of authority, who cares about what others might think of them, who cares about their status, who cares about what kind of facade that they put on in front of others, will not only hide and put their spin on sin, but will deny and pretend that the sin ever even happened. But for David to confess this sin only serves to reveal that, God, that David cared more about his relationship with God than the fallout of his actions. And David did have to live with his consequences for the rest of his life. Because if you read 2 Samuel chapter 12 and beyond, David's kingdom is never the same again. But here is the lesson of King David. Some of us think that grace is just God's favor of his people in (laughs) prosperity. But what Psalm 51 shows us is that grace is also God's favor of his people in discipline. There are two ways to respond to God's discipline. The first is to despise the fact that our sin has been found out. That's the first. It's to despise and hate the fact that our sin has been revealed and exposed, that other people know about our sin. But the second, the other way to respond to God's discipline is to see God's discipline as but another facet of God's love for you. That God reveals and disciplines and brings to light the sin of David shows that he is still in the grip of God's severe mercy and grace. The very fact that this psalm exists shows us that God will always pursue his sinning and failing people even when they reject him and betray him. God's severe mercy exists to save us from ourselves because God loves his people too much to let his people settle in their sin. You may succeed in unfaithfulness, but if you belong to God, you can be sure that he will come after you. That's what his faithful covenant chesed love does. It comes after you. This doesn't mean that God's pursuing grace is always enjoyable, as we often know. But what if, let me ask you a question, what if if his grace didn't pursue you? What if Yahweh abandoned us when we do succeed at sin? What would happen? Take a look at verses 5 to 6. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret place. What David wants us to see is that apart from the grace and mercy of God, evil would actually run its course in us. We would actually let sin run its course in our lives. What David wants us to see is that the crimes that he committed against Bathsheba, Uriah, and God weren't freak accidents. David's sin was totally in character with the warped sinner that he had always been from the very beginning, even in his mom's womb. You know, going back to Elna, you guys remember her? Elna had said that she had carried the guilt of her lies for most of her childhood and into adulthood. 
And the reason why she had carried this guilt for so long was because she had feared that a part of her was evil. That at age nine, little Elna was capable of lying to her parents, tricking her parents, scheming against her parents that seemed worse than just hitting her sister and getting away with all of it. And if only Elna actually truly knew the picture. That unshakable feeling of guilt, the searing of Elna's conscience wasn't wrong because her guilt and conscience speaks to the reality that even in the womb of our moms, we are capable of great evil. You know, the Puritan John Owen uh, wrote that any kind of sin carries within itself the seeds of total apostasy. Any kind of sin carries within itself the seeds of total apostasy. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could, he says. Every thought of unbelief would be atheist, might it grow to its head. Every rise of lust, might it have its course, would come to the height of villainy. What John Owen is pointing out is that apart from the grace and mercy of God, we would let evil have its way in us. But he points out that a total apostasy and terrible acts of sin don't happen immediately. They germinate and stem from small, tiny seeds of sin and unbelief. That the person who sells drugs, the person who sexually assaults, the person who steals for a living, don't start off initially as drug dealers, as abusers, and as thieves. The thing is that we don't live in a series of big, dramatic moments. We don't move through life from one big decision to another big decision. We all live in an endless series of little moments. The total outcome of your life is comprised of the little moments that are played out in your relationships with other people. When you come to youth group, when you live your life throughout the week, when you go to school, when you talk with your friends, when you think the thoughts that you do in your head, the moments when you're alone, the desires of your heart. King David didn't commit adultery immediately, nor did he commit murder immediately. It started when he relaxed and was less vigilant. It began when he was least expecting it. And then he started walking around. Then he started walking outside at the wrong place. Then he looked around at the wrong time. Then he started staring and he kept staring. And then he liked what he saw. And then he sent and then he took and then he raped. What David did, what you and I will ever do, was completely in character with who he always was, a sinner through and through. But I think when we look at the sins of David, as we come to this point of the message, is that we're probably thinking that we would never ever fail and fall like he did, right? I mean, we're high schoolers after all. I mean, we're cut from a different cloth. I mean, we sin, but not like that. We come from a good family. Uh, We go to Lighthouse Community Church. We live in PV or West Torrance. We go to a good school. We have a good GPA. But the thing is, you can't talk about your personal pedigree without first talking about David's. Who was David? Have we forgotten that he was the man after God's own heart? He was the king that God personally chose. He was the mighty warrior of God. He was the great ancestor even of the Messiah. He was the king through whom all future kings would be measured by. He had everything that you could ever possibly want and it still wasn't enough for King David. For all that David was as a man after God's own heart, at the end of the day, he was still just a man. 
nonetheless. Many of us are tempted to think that we and David are fundamentally different people. But the problem is, is that we're not. What difference does it make that we are Christians on the other side of the cross and David is an Old Testament believer? What difference does that make? What extra immunity does that give you? Because if we start saying that I would never do something like that, I would never talk the way that they do, I would never act like these people, I would never hang out with people like that, then we've already taken the first steps in our own fall and the first steps in our own apostasy. Because the reality is, based off of verses 5 and 6, is that we could, we could. Don't ever be surprised at what you're capable of. You know, there's a story of this Puritan. I don't know why I'm quoting Puritans lately, but um, this guy named John Bradford, he's uh, long dead and old, or old and dead. Um, And he had happened to watch a group of prisoners being led to their execution for their crimes. And upon observation, he said this statement, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. In other words, if it weren't for the grace of God, to execution goes John Bradford. There but for the grace of God goes Erkai. There but for the grace of God goes you and me. I mentioned earlier that the story of Scripture is the most relevant thing that you and I will ever read. And I really do believe that. It's a story riddled with failure after failure after failure after failure after failure. The guilt of Adam, the guilt of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, Judas, Peter, they're all palpable and understandable because we all are them. Their guilt depicts our guilt. We and David may be different in degrees, but we are fundamentally the same in kind. We are all cut from the same cloth. We are sinners through and through. And for David, there was a price for his rebellion, and there is a price for ours. I want you guys to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. I've talked about it for long enough, but 2 Samuel chapter 12, it's before the book of Psalms. 2 Samuel, uh, it's after uh, Judges and Ruth. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And I want you guys to turn and look at chapter 12, verses 13 to 14. Verses 13 to 14. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And we're told that God has put David's sin away and he shall not die. In a word, David was forgiven. You know, the idea with forgiveness is that you carry a debt, but your debt has been sent away. You carry guilt, but your guilt has been sent away. You carry sin, but your sin has been sent away. But the question is, if God is truly just, truly righteous, and God doesn't sweep sin under the rug, the question is, where does God send David's sin? And where does God send your sin? And the story tells us that while the guilt of sin was forgiven, the consequences of sin was inflicted. Verse 14 tells us that the son was, that was born of David in Bathsheba would die. 
Where did God put David's sin? You know, it's as if the child has become David's substitute. By no means am I reading the New Testament into this Old Testament passage. That's not, this is not where Jesus dies. But what I want us to notice here is an echo, a, a pattern, a typology. Could the death of a son of David point to the death of the son of David? Where the sin of David and the sin of you and me would be carried by the greater David. Where the only place that we can find mercy and freedom from our guilt is when we unburden it at the cross of Jesus Christ, the true and better David. You see, either we can carry and bear our own sin and our own guilt for the rest of our lives like Elna can, or we can bring it to the foot of the cross and lay all of our sin, all of our shame, and all of our guilt there. Where else can we bring our guilt and our sin? And if you want some obvious and clear application, this means that we need to bring our confession to God and we need to bring it to him every day. The joy of confession is that it brings us to Jesus himself. Confession isn't for those who love the burden of their guilt, but for those who want their burdens lifted. A sign of maturity isn't just that sin afflicts us. A sign of maturity is that when, when sin afflicts us, we grow in laying it down and confessing it. Because in our confession, we are actually confessing the story of the cross. How the sinless son of David has taken upon himself our sin and our guilt. How he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. How the Lamb of God was pierced, as Isaiah 53 says, for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Have you ever done something that you still regret doing to this day? What guilt do you carry tonight? What sin do you carry tonight? What burden do you carry tonight? In Jesus, God is inviting us to lay down our burdens and to lay down our guilt and to follow him into a life of freedom. The debt that we owe, Jesus paid it all. The wrath of God, Jesus drank it all. The sin and guilt that we carry, Jesus took it all. Leave it to him. Leave it with him. Where will God send your sin and your guilt? Can you take it all? Have him send it to Jesus. He can bear it all. And he can take it all. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you feel guilty tonight? Do you feel burdened tonight? Do you have sins tonight? Leave it with Jesus. Let's pray.
God, I don't, I don't know where our high schoolers are at. But God, if you had pricked their conscience, I pray that you would apply the saving work of Jesus in their lives. That they would see the, 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 the disgusting and deceitful nature of their sin. But in so doing, that they would actually cling to the mercy of God. That they would see their sin on the cross. And that as they look there, that they would find everything that they need. Jesus himself. And pray this for our high schoolers. And God, I do pray that you would bear much fruit from even the discussion in our small groups. Pray that you would really bear much, not just honesty, but much rejoicing in Jesus. And we thank you and we love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.